Last night, Special Counsel Jack Smith gathered the press in a conference room in Washington, D.C. for an announcement. Good evening. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. Trump's now been indicted three times, twice by Smith himself. Back in June, Smith charged Trump with risking national security by taking classified documents from the White House. Now, the former president will face a trial for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. There's a lot we still don't know about the case Smith's been building over the last few months. But when I got The Atlantic's David Graham on the phone, my first question for him was easy. How's Trump taking all this? It's interesting. Trump likes to suggest that he's not really rattled by these things. And so he likes to put on that air, but also in some conversations he's admitted that he is rattled by it. And he talks about not liking to to have to tell his wife that he's been indicted. Um, So I think it does get to him. I think it gets under his skin. And also it's a, you know, it's a genuine threat. If he were convicted on these charges, he faces a lot of time in prison. And I think it's, you know, it's already the most serious charges against any current or former president. And that's part of his legacy. In his statement, Smith asked the audience to remember that until a trial has taken place, the defendant is innocent until proven guilty. It's like he realizes a lot of people have already made their minds up about this case, don't you think? Oh, right. And we, you know, we see the polling data where, you know, Republicans tend to either say he did nothing wrong or say that he did something wrong, but doesn't matter. Democrats have had their minds made up since, uh, you know, 2.30 on January 6th. um, And you don't see a lot of movement since then. If Trump is convicted, does that keep him from being reelected? It doesn't. You know, the only thing that can prevent Trump from being reelected other than the will of the people would be for him to have been impeached and have the Senate say that. And as we know, the Senate did not convict him. And so, you know, there's there's nothing that prevents a convicted felon from being president. And it's the sort of scenario that I think the founders didn't anticipate. It wasn't something they expected. and, And yet here we are in this unusual and unprecedented circumstance. Today on the show, another Trump case. Will these latest charges be the ones to stick? I'm Mary C. Curtis, in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. 
Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Special Counsel Jack Smith brought four distinct charges against Trump. Conspiracy to defraud the United States. Conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. And conspiracy against rights. That's a lot of legal jargon. So I asked David Graham what Smith is claiming Trump actually did. So there are four things, four parts to this. You know, they say at the outset he embarked on this campaign of lies starting from the night of the election, which was he knew they were lies, but, you know, his constitutional right to lie. But they they lay out several things that he did um, that is part of the, you know, the actual crime. One is he tried to subvert state elections. He tried to get election, you know, local election officials to change results. And I think the most dramatic example of that that everyone knows is um, the phone call to Brad Raffensperger in Georgia asking him to find 11,000 or so votes. It also talks about how he encouraged these slates of fraudulent electors. He tried to use the Justice Department to launch these sham investigations, uh, they allege. And then in the fourth count, he attempted to uh, get Vice President Mike Pence to use powers he didn't have to prevent the certification on January 6th itself. On a scale from jaywalking to treason, (laughs) just how serious are these charges? I mean, it's a lot closer to treason than jaywalking. Um, It's, you know, I think it's important. We've heard a lot of people throwing around treason as a term, and this is not treason. The crimes that he's charged with have sentences typically in the you know, five to 20 year range, not the sorts of sentences we associate with treason. But I also think that this is just so important because what Trump was doing was really attacking the bedrock of American democracy. He was trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power and he was trying to prevent voters' will from being enacted in him losing the election. And and so in that sense, this may not be the most serious crime that someone can be charged with, but it's hard to think of something that strikes closer to the heart of you know, what makes this country and what makes this country great than what Trump is accused of doing here. Well, you've mentioned treason, and you said that you could hardly imagine something more serious, but yet it's not among the charges. Did that surprise you at all? It didn't. And I think partly only because we have sort of been following what Jack Smith has been doing and following the sorts of things that have come out of this. The House January 6th committee, you know, recommended Um, insurrection charges, which we don't see here. It didn't recommend treason. And part of that is just that the bar for treason is so extraordinarily high. I suspect that although Jack Smith probably would never say so, there's a certain amount of political consideration here too. It is incendiary enough to charge a former president with the sort of support that Trump has with these serious crimes. Um, Going after him for treason might be even more politically divisive, and that might be something that a prosecutor just isn't quite willing to embark on. And even if he were, he might just think there was no chance he'd get a jury to agree with him and get a conviction. To a lot of people, Trump's most egregious offense was the speech he gave at the Ellipse on January 6th. That day, in front of a crowd of thousands, he claimed the election was rigged. He also urged his supporters to never give up, never concede. But January 6th isn't really the focal event here. It's really not. I mean, as you read the indictment, I think it's interesting how much what happened on January 6th itself and that speech becomes a little bit of an afterthought. You know, Smith says that really this this whole thing started on November 13th. 
um, when Trump acknowledged that he was not, you know, in court filings, basically, that he had lost the election in Arizona. And that's where things tipped over from a kind of disinformation campaign that was totally constitutional into this conspiracy to subvert the election. And the focus becomes not on what we saw in, on, in that speech, but more on these things like like the fake electors, like calling the election officials in, in places like Georgia or, or in Michigan or in Arizona and trying to get them to do things. You know, by the time we get to January 6th, it's really Trump is desperate. And he's trying to pressure Mike Pence. He's trying to do whatever he can. It, you know, the jig is basically up at that point. And I think it's interesting. The indictment says Trump exploited the violence and chaos on January 6th. But it doesn't really say he's to blame for it. It doesn't blame him for the riot, it, it, although it notes that um, many of the people there were there because they had believed the lies that he was telling about the election. As you just said, they go through great pains to note that Trump had a constitutional right to claim fraud, even falsely. So how is what Trump did different? And how can Smith prove that Trump lied and wasn't, say, just believing bad intel that all the folks around him were feeding him? I think those are two really important questions, and I think they they cut to exactly the sorts of defenses that we might expect Trump to make. You know, in the case of he had a right to lie, it's not so much the things he said publicly, but what he did behind closed doors with that information. So you can say what you want about the election being stolen, um, but when you use that information to try to pressure state election officials to change the results or encourage people to send fraudulent slates of electors, that's when it becomes something else. And, you know, this all, I think, has a nexus in that really interesting um, charge, which is about, you know, basically preventing people from having their vote counted or from having the, the right to vote, the right to, to speak on elections. That's what happened here. It wasn't just that he was lying. It's that he was lying with the intention of making sure people's people were effectively disenfranchised. The, you know, whether he knew, I think, is an important question, too. And in the last few days, Trump has been saying things that suggest, oh, I was, you know, relying on the advice of lawyers. And I think we can expect that again. Smith tries to get at that. You know, I, I think it feels fairly convincing to me. It will probably feel less convincing to some people. But he goes through all of the officials who told Trump, basically, you've lost. And that was officials on his campaign. That was top officials in the federal government, in the intelligence establishment, in the Justice Department. People saying, there's not fraud. The votes aren't here. You, you just don't have it. There's not a path to victory. And we can file these lawsuits, but they're not going to work. And Smith also notes, I think, interestingly, that Trump acknowledged privately that the claims that he was pursuing seemed crazy. So in all those places, Smith is trying to build a case that whatever else Trump says, he knew that it was a lot of nonsense. As you note, it goes beyond the protests. And I was very interested reading through this indictment, which I did, that they went into a lot of detail about the false elector scheme that was happening in seven states. What do we know here? Yeah, there's a great deal of detail, and it goes through each of the states. When I think back on this, it seems like such a harebrained idea that they would find these electors or people who would who purport to be electors and would submit documents saying that they were the genuine electors, and then you know through some sort of process where Mike Pence said there was a question and senders voted, somehow these electors would become certified as the real electors, and that would hand the election to Trump. And it required so many other things to work. You know, it required would have required Congress to vote the way they wanted. It would have required Mike Pence um, to go along with this scheme. Um, but as Smith argues here, I think had a real um, 
you know, posed a real danger to the integrity of the election. Based on what you've read, how solid are these charges? Do you think the DOJ has a strong case? Well, I think that parts of it are, are more slam dunk than others. You know, the scheme that he lays out, I think it's very clear that a lot of the facts here are, are strong. We've learned them elsewhere. Trump has confirmed them. People in Trump's orbit have confirmed them. We saw this in the testimony on the January 6th committee. So that's all there. I think, you know, one question is the extent to which this really was a conspiracy versus just a sort of, um, either, these are Hail Marys versus a real conspiracy and a, and a real threat. And the other question, I think, is how much Trump believed it, you know, as we were discussing. And of course, all of that comes down to what a jury is willing to believe. You know, you can have a great case, you can have incredible fact-finding, but if you can't convince a jury that that's what Trump and his conspirators were really doing, it doesn't get you very far. And, you know, that's the, the interesting wild card of any trial in the American system. We'll be right back. Trump has been summoned to federal court this Thursday at 4 p.m. What's that process going to be like? What's going to happen? We saw a little bit of this when he was summoned in Florida. You know, he'll come in and it will be highly arranged. The time will be set. The place will be set. He'll come in in his motorcade with Secret Service. They'll come in. He'll be booked. He's likely to be fingerprinted. Probably not to be to get a mugshot um, based on what we've seen so far, but it could happen. And then he'll appear in front of the judge. And that's a really straightforward proceeding. You know, he'll be told of the charges against him uh, in Florida. He declined to have them read on the basis that he already knew what they were. His lawyers are likely to enter a not guilty plea. And then he'll leave. And the question, I think, is is less what happens inside than what kind of a circus we get outside. Um, you know, do people show up uh, either to protest for uh, in his favor or against him? You know, is there a tense atmosphere? Is there violence? Or does it end up being fairly calm, which is the way it happened in Florida? We know that Trump has been mounting his own version of a defense on Truth Social. Have we got a sense of what Trump's actual legal defense might be? A little bit. And he's he's sort of dropped some crumbs along the way. You know, he filed this very strange document early in the spring, sort of out of nowhere. It was like a 10-page memo that didn't get a lot of attention. And I thought it was really interesting because it seemed to be pointing at what his defense would be or, you know, sort of trying maybe to, uh, not to intimidate Smith in the sense that his tweets might, but to sort of say, look, there's a lot of doubt here. Do you really want to indict me on these charges? And basically trying to present a case that he was acting in good faith. He had reasons to believe that the election really was fraudulent. All the sorts of things that you might imagine. That clearly didn't work to deter Jack Smith, but I think we'll hear some of that again. I'll be interested to see to what extent he tries to argue there really was some sort of fraud. Every time this has come up in court, he has gotten smacked down on it. As the indictment notes, every case he filed after the election failed. And generally, his lawyers have pushed him away from making the kinds of claims in court that he makes in public. But he's the one in charge. You know, the lawyers aren't in charge. And so um, I'm interested to see how he handles that. He's also in a little bit of a political vice because if he goes into court and admits that the fraud claims were nonsense— then it cuts against you know many of the arguments he makes on the campaign and the things he's telling his followers. But if he goes into court and claims they're true, a judge is not likely to have a lot of patience for that since there's no evidence. Oh, the political versus the legal. He's a little bit hamstrung there. Yeah. 
So there are several unnamed co-conspirators here, attorneys, DOJ officials, political consultants. Do we have any idea about these folks, who they are, what's going on? Some of them are pretty clearly identifiable, you know, based on quotes we've seen elsewhere. Rudy Giuliani is one of them. Jeffrey Clark from the Justice Department is one of them. Sidney Powell appears to be one of them. So those things, you know, those people are in there. We don't know exactly what's going on with them. Do we know about their specific roles in this conspiracy as outlined in the indictment? Yeah. So we see a little bit um, of what each of them was doing. So Giuliani, for example, um, was really involved in uh, Arizona, pushing on, on Arizona. He met with legislators there. He infamously said, we don't have the evidence, but we have lots of theories. John Eastman, you know, this conservative legal professor, was the brain such as it was behind, um, you know, the Mike Pence plot and, and was pressuring Pence. He was meeting with people. And so we see him through there. He's also involved in the fake electors scheme. Sidney Powell was, you know, famously the Kraken lawyer. So she was filing a lot of these lawsuits and trying to claim fraud in various states. Jeffrey Clark, who was the head of a division at the Justice Department, was the man who put together these schemes where he was going to basically engineer a mutiny at the Justice Department and take over the department and weaponize it to create investigations that would, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, create doubt and, and allow Congress to to overturn the election. Trump famously told some of the, his Justice Department colleagues to sort of like, let the investigation happen and leave it to me and the congressional Republicans. So each of them has this role in it. Some of them connected as we know, Giuliani and, and Powell were, were working together. Um, but each of them seems to have their own kind of fiefdom inside the indictment. Do you have any idea why they weren't named or why their indictments weren't unsealed? Why just Trump? I think one answer is they're still building the case. One possibility is they're still building the case against them. Another possibility is that they have cooperated enough that they've gotten off. But I'm not sure. And Smith has run such a tight ship that you know, we can only really surmise what's going on from what the people he's talking to say, not from his own team. So it's, it's a little bit hard to tell. How important is the judge assigned to this case? Do we expect that to influence the outcome in any way? Well, as we've seen in Florida, the most important thing a judge can do maybe is in terms of timing. Smith said, you know, in his remarks after the indictment that he was going to um, try to seek a speedy trial, and how fast a judge is willing to move on this, I think, is going to make a big difference with the election coming. Most former prosecutors and legal experts I've spoken to are skeptical that we would really get a trial going until after the election, just with something that's complicated and this many moving parts. But a judge could really try to push it if they wanted. We've seen in the January 6th trials for rioters that you know different judges can make a difference, and that has come especially in the case of sentencing where some rioters have gotten much longer sentences than others, depending on the judge. Um, but different judges are, you know, m more friendly to defense lawyers or more skeptical of the government case. So we could see some difference there. It looks as though the case has been assigned to U.S. District Judge Tanya S. Chutkin, according to the court docket. That's an Obama appointee, the only federal judge in Washington, D.C., who has sentenced January 6th defendants to sentences longer than the government had requested. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, that's probably good news for the prosecution. It also, um, you know, those the combination of those things mean that we will probably expect some pretty serious attacks from Trump on the judge. You know, he has not been shy about going after prosecutors or going after judges, which is not the kind of thing that any defense lawyer would recommend. 
Um, but since Trump seems more interested often in the public perception than what actually happens in the courtroom, and because his defense seems so much premised on his political support, I imagine we're going to get attacks on her and, and you know, claims that she's biased, claims that she's part of a persecution of January 6th rioters, claims that because she's an Obama-appointed judge, she's impartial. Given Trump's record, I wouldn't be surprised to see attacks on her race because she's black. So, you know, I, I think uh, we, we can expect some sort of heated rhetoric from Trump and also from many of his supporters around that. Hold on to your hat. <laughs> so this situation is really unprecedented and not just because Trump used to be the president of the United States. He's going to be contesting these charges in the midst of an election where he's running, he's already leading in the polls to be the Republican nominee. And if he were to win, he would likely be able to order the Justice Department to just close the case against him. What do you make of all of this? It's, uh, it is, as you say, unprecedented. And it's a little bit hard to even wrap my head around. You know, we have, in this case, crimes that Trump could only have allegedly committed were he president. You have his lawyers um, arguing that he cannot go on trial for them because he is running for president. So a de facto claim that a candidate for president is immune from prosecution because he's simply too busy. And then if he wins, he, as you say, could, has a lot of avenues where he could try to shut down the case. I mean, all of these things spring from the power of the presidency in ways that Trump is trying, has tried to use it and is trying to use it in ways that are brand new. And of course, just the, you know, the specter of a president trying to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power and steal the election for himself is fairly unusual itself. Is Jack Smith racing the clock here? You know, he needs to be, um, whether he is or not. Um, kind of funny, in Trump's statement, he said, why didn't they charge me for these things two and a half years ago? And that's a place where, where uh, Trump and his liberal critics kind of agree. Smith has to move quickly on this, but he also has to move carefully, and that's really tough. You know, he, he can't bring a hasty case um, especially in something as sensitive. It has to be, everything has to be buttoned up. Every T has to be crossed and I dotted. But he also knows that with the election coming, there's only so far he's going to get. And if he doesn't get it done before the election and if Trump wins, it's going to be a dead letter. Thank you so much, David Graham, for coming on What Next? Uh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. David Graham is a staff writer at The Atlantic. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3.